Before we start the show, I want to thank the thousands of you, the thousands who have read This Book Will Make You Dangerous. Many of you have told me that the book's unique way of exploring fear, confidence, and purpose has had a lasting impact, that it's much easier for you to get clarity and direction about what really matters and what you want to do in this lifetime. It's also amazing to hear that quite a few of you have read it multiple times and even bought copies for friends, so thank you again. Just in case you weren't aware, I created a free companion video course for the book. And in these videos, I walk you through the big takeaways and practices from each chapter. And I even cover some extra stuff that's not included in the book. Information on how to access the course is in newer versions of the book. And if you own an older version of the book and you don't know how to access the course, just hit me up via the contact form at triplinear.com and we'll get you all set up. And one last thing, if you're one of the thousands who have already read the book, please consider leaving an honest review on Amazon so that others can decide if it's right for them. Again, thank you so much for reading. This book will make you dangerous. And now let's start the show. You are listening to the new man beyond the macho jerk and the new age wimp. Your host is men's coach, Trip Lemire. If you feel sadness, guilt, fear, anxiety, or depression, does that mean there's something wrong with you? Are you waiting until your fear subsides before you do what you believe you were put on this earth to do? And is it possible to use our fears as a guide to find the best that life has to offer? Akshay Nanavate has battled addiction, PTSD, and chosen to run across every country on this planet. He's also convinced that it's time we start using our fears as a doorway to create the lives, professions, and relationships that we truly want. Welcome to The New Man. Today, we're talking with Akshay Nanavati. Did I get that right? I'd already yes, screwed up. No, no, you did, you did great. That was okay. perfect. <laughs> <laughs> just want to make sure I got that right. Uh, you, he's battled addiction. He served as a Marine in Iraq. He's been diagnosed with PTSD. He said, to hell with that. Then he created a mission to run literally across every country on the planet. And uh, now he's got a book coming out called Fearvana. The Revolutionary Science of How to Turn Fear into Health, Wealth, and Happiness. And you can learn more by visiting fearvana.com. Thanks for talking today, man. Thanks for having me on the show, Trip. It's a real pleasure to be here. I had a lot of fun researching you and researching, the, you know, going through your book because uh, there's not a lot of guys that have done what, you, what you're doing. I mean, sledding <laughs> across hundreds of miles of ice and uh, I, I'm just mowing through running shoes like, like left and right. But... <laughs> I, I want to, you, you've got an interesting, awesome philosophy about how fear is the doorway to empower us. And I want to, I want to get into that a little later on in the conversation, but first I want to get a sense of who you are. I want, I want the, the listeners to understand kind of the path that you've been on and what, what's led you up to this point. So give us a sense. I mean, early on you, you were, you were, you had a kind of a bumpy childhood with alcohol and drugs. Is that right? Yeah, it kind of started. I mean, I moved around a ton. So I was born here in India, uh, where I'm speaking to you from right now, then moved to Singapore and then Austin, Texas. And when I was there, you know, I wasn't very sure, I guess, my path and who I wanted to be. And I got involved in drugs for about a year and a half, very heavily immersed. I, in fact, mm -hmm. lost two friends to drug addiction. And that could have easily been me, too. I was very close to heading down that path. And uh, it was kind of a crazy series of events that changed it. I watched the movie Black Hawk Down. Have you ever seen that movie? I did, yeah. Yeah, it's a very, so you know that it's a very powerful movie and it's based on a true story. 
And so just watching this war movie and watching the courage of men in combat, you know, sacrificing their lives for their fellow human beings made me question my own lifestyle and really made me think about what I was doing and would I be able to have that kind of courage. So I started reading book after book on military life in the com- life in combat and uh, pretty much stopped doing drugs and then enlisted in the Marines. So even in the fog of being uh, of being in you know being on drugs, that's what cut through was this this kind of sense of purpose and a and a draw to go into something that challenging. Yeah, I still actually remember that day. In fact, we were a po- we all of us were getting together our friends. We were supposed to do drugs that day. We were going to do a lot of LSD and you had it on your calendar. And, uh, like do drugs today. <laughs> exactly. We were just, we were about to hang out and we knew it would be a night for, you know, hitting, doing LSD, dropping acid. And, uh, and, uh, and one friend wanted to go watch the movie and nobody would go. So I said, okay, I'll go with you. And after, you know, after the movie, he had the book, I borrowed the book from him and I finished the book in, I don't know, you know, a few days, if not less. And then it just triggered something in me that I like, you know, that, that, that idea was appealing to me. And I think I've always had maybe some degree of, again, that nature versus nurture of, this desire to push my limits. I mean, the drugs was an avenue to do that. I was the first person in my group to go from marijuana to the harder stuff, you know? Okay. And uh, I was always pushing those limits. And this just became a way to realize, that, hey, that this could be a more positive way to do that, you know? Okay. And so you come back from, you served in Iraq and you come back and then you're diagnosed with PTSD and something, something about the disorder thing didn't fit for you. What was that? Yeah, I caught, you know, at first, first when they diagnosed me, it was kind of hard to even accept that. And as I started doing more research on the subject, and really what led me to the research in the first place was when I started drinking to the point that I actually thought, you know, I thought of taking my own life. And I still, again, remember that low moment. And just the fact that thought that thought would even hit me was shocking. And so I said, okay, something needs to change. And so I started researching neuroscience, psychology, spirituality, just again, reading book after book. And, uh, and I realized that the symptoms of post-traumatic stress are not indicative of a disorder. I mean, it's very normal to jump when there's loud noises after living in a world where loud noises equals death. You know, mm-hmm. It doesn't mean you have a disorder. These are just normal human responses to the experience of war. And by attaching that label, it kind of fueled into this downward spiral that, oh, there's something wrong with me. So anytime something happened, it, you know, it, it led into that self-identity, that belief on there's something wrong with me. I have this disorder. And I realized that, okay, look, I have a few you know, issues because of the war. It doesn't mean that it's something wrong. It's a normal human response to war and I can just make it mean something else. And that's kind of what led to this word and to this idea of fear of Anna. Well, let's, cause I want to imagine there's a lot of guys out there that are struggling with this. They're, they're, they're in some Absolutely. hole with alcoholism or drugs. They're, mm-hmm. they're dealing with something, whether it's been a uh, combat or just other, other things that have happened in their lives that have got them in a hole. So you turn the corner there. Can you can you give us some insight into that? Like that 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 ability to say, wait a second, I don't have to let this label disempower me. I mean, what did you start to do at that point? So one of the most important things I start to realize is that we don't actually control what first shows up in our brain. So if I'm standing on the edge of the cliff, for example, and I feel fear, I don't control that. The fear is a normal human response to that experience. So this that awareness was invaluable for me because it led me to believe that I don't I mean it led me to realize that I don't control this experience of let's say, you know, not liking a crowd or jumping when there's loud noises. And I started to then say, okay, if I don't control this, what else can I make this situation mean? So for example, the addiction to drink. It's hard at first. I mean, when I quit, you know, I actually broke my sobriety once and I then figured out what the trigger was that led to me breaking it. And then as a result, I, you know, worked on that trigger. So we have to realize we don't control when these urges show up and we have to create a space between the first experience, the first emotional experience to the responses of life and our, our choice on how we respond to those emotions. 
And you can do all kinds of things to create that space. It's as simple as, you know, doing things like meditation or just simply saying, okay, I'm aware of this experience and reframing it and saying like, again, with PTSD, there's nothing wrong with me. Even with addiction, there's nothing wrong with me. I realize I tend to have a sort of addictive personality and I just channeled it to something more meaningful, which is why I now do things like running ultra marathons. (laughs) So part of it is you definitely need something to fill that void. You cannot just, a lot of people have seen struggle with addiction who then went back. In fact, a few of my friends, as I said, who OD'd, is that they didn't leave something to fill that void. You know, they, they left it and it was empty. Mm. So you need to find something. I call it a worthy struggle. You need to find a struggle that's worthy of who you are and who you want to be. And I call it a struggle because no matter what you want to pursue, life's going to be hard. And it's kind of reframing that experience of hard. So like developing a positive relationship to suffering. So when, when the word suffering or struggle or adversity comes up, it's no longer a negative thing. It's actually a positive thing. I want to come back to this idea of the worthy struggle. It's, it's in my notes because it's such a huge aspect of this because so many of us are, we, we're like, yeah, I'm definitely struggling. I'm definitely challenged. But there's, the worthy part is, is not, uh, that box isn't getting ticked. But uh, yeah. I want to get a little bit more of your story. So, so you, 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 you remove the one thing, right? You remove the one part of the struggle, which is the alcohol. And then you say, hey, I got to fill this with something meaningful. So what was meaningful for you? What did you put in there? So that's partly was led to writing the book, but I actually sobered up while writing the book because writing the book brought up a lot of my own demons. And then the second part of that was- What do you mean? How, how so? I share a lot of my own stories, you know, like uh, right. how I lost I lost a friend to the- I share about my own struggles with drinking. I actually, so I rewrote a lot of the books as I was going through this journey. But I especially share how I lost and, it, you know, bringing, and in some ways it was a good thing because I brought up a lot of the awareness of this. And once you have the awareness, then you can choose to do something differently about it. So, for example, when before I went to Iraq, I lost a very close friend of mine to the war. And we had always volunteered to go together. When, as soon as we joined our unit, we kept volunteering to go together. And one summer I was vacationing here in India. He finally got a unit to go with and he never came back. And I always felt that had I gone with him, had I not been vacationing, I could have taken his seat. And, you know, rationally, I get that a million things could have come in the way. But emotionally, that guilt of not having gone with him always stayed with me. And everybody kept telling me, you know, get rid of the guilt and it's not your fault. You shouldn't feel guilty. And it never went away. And so ultimately, I learned then through these through this process of writing to reframe my guilt and to start saying things like, that this guilt can be valuable. So for example, now on the front of my training journal, I have a picture of my friend and me, and I have the words under it saying, this should have been you, earn this life. Now I say that since I'm still alive, let me do something meaningful with it. So guilt became my ally. And I kind of figured this all out through the book. And uh, it's, you know, it led me to dark places, but I think that sometimes the the stronger the demons, the stronger the divinity it requires to defeat those demons. So we discover greatness within ourselves by engaging that battle with those demons. Is this where the running comes in? Absolutely. I mean, that's where, you know, that second part of that was exercise has been my salvation in every way. I mean, that's what got me out of drugs in the first place. Well, how was it the salvation? What is it just gave you something to do or did it, do you think it affected your neurobiology? What, what was going on there? A bit of both, you know, I mean, exercise has of course been proven to release those same high, those endorphins, the dopamine, the joy hormone in the brain. It releases a chemical called anandamide, which is the Sanskrit word for anand, which literally translates to bliss. So exercise is definitely sort of neurologically, you know, it changes your brain in a positive way, but it's also, it gives you a, a, so yeah, it gives you that high that, you know, once replaced by drugs and alcohol and also gives you a meaningful struggle. It, it channels your um, struggle into something, something beautiful. So when you're running and you hit a low moment and you discover that ability to, you know, overcome that low moment, I think that's the most beautiful thing you can discover in life is who you are and ultimately keep evolving. And exercise is a great way to tap into the mind, body, and spirit in a way that nothing else truly does. Mm. 
Got it. And then, and so what, what, how did this thing of like running across the, all the countries in the world come about? Cause it sounds, it sounds fucking it sounds insane. Crazy. I, yeah. <laughs> okay. I'm glad we're on the same page there. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Believe me, I get it. Okay. <laughs> absolutely. I get it. Uh, it was actually inspired by this Australian ultra runner. His name is Pat Farmer and he ran from the North pole to the South pole in about 10 and a half months, averaging two marathons a day without a day off. And he talks about how, and that's obviously insane, right? Exactly. That's absolutely insane. And he talks about in his book that when he was planning to do this, nobody believed him. Everybody said that nobody would sponsor him because they're like, this is crazy. It's not even possible. And he went out there and did it. And that to me was like, that's a beautiful thing. So that kind of reframes your ability, your mindset on what becomes possible, right? So I've always loved traveling. I've always loved pushing or, you know, I've always loved traveling and then gotten more involved in pushing my limits. So I thought this would be a cool way for that self goal of exploring new worlds, new cultures, and getting to test myself while also doing something greater than self and sharing these moments of beauty that I've experienced in humanity, you know, to show a different side of humanity, to show how beautiful we all truly are, because I think we can come together through struggle, through play, and sports has always been a great way to kind of unite people. So not only are we going to use this to raise funds for a charity, we've started, I started a nonprofit called the Fearvana Foundation, also to tell different stories. I mean, I've already had amazing stories of just people I've met on this journey that just have shown just the beauty of humanity, you know, and we don't often see that, especially don't not if we turn on the news, right? <laughs> yeah, well, I was curious about this because I work with so many guys, especially once they've kind of turned a corner in their life where they're like, all right, I figured out like how fast I can go and how much I can do. Now I want to do something meaningful and meaningful for them is where am I impacting others, right? Where am I taking what I've learned and, and sharing that with others? And it seems like that's what mm-hmm. the Fearvana book is here. And I, I've, I've struggled to understand like these kind of crazy trips like you're describing where people go out and it's very solitary. And, um, mm-hmm. and so I'm wondering if you could speak to that because the skeptic in me wonders is couldn't this time and energy and money be used to help others more effectively? <laughs> oh, absolutely. <laughs> I don't want to piss great... on what you're doing, but I just, yeah, it just no, kind of no, boggles no. me. <laughs> it's a, it's a great point <laughs> and, uh, and a very valid one. And, you know, ultimately I think that it's like, I guess why do anything really, but I'll give you an example. It is very solitary, but I'll give you a quick example of what I mean by experiencing the beauty of humanity and why I want to share these stories. So when I was on a 55 mile run across Luxembourg, I hit this real low point in the run as, Uh as it happens. (laughs) And I was kind of suffering. And so I stopped to put a little strap around my knee and this gentleman named George in the small town in Luxembourg saw me, walked over to me, and he didn't speak any English. I didn't speak any French, but through sort of showing him my phone, showing him the map of my phone and, you know, body language, I was explaining that I was running across the country. And he invited me to his home for water. And when we parted ways, he gave me a big hug and just sort of wished me well. It kind of gave me the kiss on the cheek. And, and it was such a beautiful and touching moment of humanity of how we can come through get come together through the struggle. You know, I mm-hmm. think, and I experienced the same thing in Iraq, for example, when Iraqis would tell me, uh, I feel sorry Americans have to pay in blood for Iraqi freedom. And separate from all the politics of the war, these were just, you know, hum, human beings on the ground coming together in such a beautiful, meaningful way. Right. And so while, yes, of course, there's a self-goal related to this, it truly is about sharing these stories and showing how when we suffer together, when we play together, when we experience humanity on the extremes, I think we can come together and we can unite us and show that no matter what part of the world people are from, we're just, we're, you know, part of the same human family. And that's mm. a truly beautiful thing. So I don't know if it's the best way or the right way or what to, uh, <laughs> to sure, make an sure. impact, but it's a way that I've chosen to, to do so. And ultimately, you know, I definitely plan on, uh, I mean, like, for example, when I run across Rwanda, I have a friend who 
uh, works, uh, who has a nonprofit out there. So we're going to be, you know, I want to actually work on the ground with this organization. I want to use this run as a way to raise awareness for these things. And I get that you're going to have a lot of critics talking about it. And that's just part of the part of the you know game uh, when you when you do anything, I guess. Uh, but that's just part of the, the endeavor. And I think it, it still allows me to serve in a way that that that's beautiful. And, and personally, also just personal experience has been really cool as well. You know, the, the thing I really like about it is that you're, you're following the thing that lights you up. You're, and I think so many of us are looking for the right way. Like you said, we're looking for the best way. We're looking for what we should do, but we actually don't pay attention to where we're lit up and where we're excited and where the enthusiasm is. We, we've learned to deny that through over the years. So I want to, I want to, I want to emphasize that. I want to draw that out because I think that's where we find the thing that will keep us going. You know, once, once, once it's yeah. no longer, okay, well, I'm doing the right thing or I, I'm, I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing. Why aren't, why I'm, I'm not happy. I'm not enthusiastic. I'm not enjoying this anymore. Yeah. So I like, yeah. that you're, I like that you're drawn from that. And that's a, that's a huge reminder for all of us. Let's talk about Fearvana. So what is Fearvana? Like describe, you know, define what you mean by Fearvana. Sure. I define the state as a state of bliss that results from engaging our fears to pursue our own worthy struggle. And so that can be anything. I mean, fear of honor can be running a marathon. It can be playing chess. It can be writing movies, you know, uh, hosting a podcast, whatever it is. The point is, it's that, again, it's just like what you were saying. It's that worthy struggle. It's your path, you know. And when you pursue that worthy struggle, it's not easy. Inevitably, like anything, there'll be challenges and it'll be scary. You have to take risks to grow in any way, spiritually, financially, mentally. And so it is scary, but it's engaging those fears to pursue that. And that's what I define the the the, the state of fear on and really the entire experience of it. I think it's I think it's so critical because when I when I to come back to this enthusiasm piece, that when I talk to people and I'm saying, What's the thing that lights you up? What's the thing that that gives you this fire? And there's a there's a belief in there. They're like, well, I can't just do that. I can't do what I would enjoy doing. That would mm-hmm. be the easy <laughs> way. And I'm like, no, there's nothing in there about that being easy. And I'm glad that you're <laughs> yeah. highlighting this here because you're saying that when we cho- when we when we get in touch with that that thing, you know, Camp- Joseph Campbell called our bliss. It doesn't mean it's an easy path. It, it means that we're going to then be confronted by all kinds of shit. Um, <laughs> yeah. And that you're saying that the the, the state of bliss and the state of unity that 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 is that comes from uh, addressing and driving directly into our fears, using fear as the doorway into that state. Is that correct? Exactly, because I think ultimately anything worthwhile, at least anything worthwhile I've done in my life, there's been at least one moment where I've said, this is awful and I don't want to be doing this. <laughs> Whether it be skiing across Greenland or even writing a book about fear was terrifying because the whole time I'm thinking, you know, is it any good? Are people going to like it? I know I'm going to get those one-star reviews on Amazon and what am I going to make that mean about me? You know, all that kind yeah. of stuff. <laughs> so, but I think that going through those moments is such a necessary and beautiful part of uh, of doing something meaningful. So absolutely, like you're saying, you know, there's going to be low moments, but that collective low, and that's why I love long distance running too, because in one moment, you know, it becomes this microcosm of the entire human uh, condition, the entire human experience. You get to experience highs, you get to experience lows, you get to experience moments where you're neither high or low, and you're just kind of in, in a, you know, in the moment completely. Mm. And you experience all of that in this one, like essentially experience. And that's so beautiful. It's uh, it's obviously has its challenges, but I think that's what it's all about. <laughs> all right. So instead of avoiding the thing that scares me or the thing that is creating anxiety or the thing that's creating tension or nervousness, I, I can start, I'm getting the fear of on the other side of that, that I start to see those things as the doorway. Is that right? 
Absolutely. That becomes your path to greatness. And it's literally as simple as reshaping this experience of fear. You know, I mean, like Sir Richard Branson said that uh, it's important not to fear fear because fear is fuel. Fear is energy. And that's what I even inspired to write this book because that word itself has such a negative connotation. And I think that's the problem. I'll give you an example. I was working with somebody who said, you know, I just need to wait for the fear to go away so I can quit my job. And so he wanted to start a business. And I said, that's your problem. It's, you're waiting for the fear to go away. It's natural to be scared, you know? <laughs> yeah, and, and it, as if the idea that somehow the fear is wrong or an indicator exactly. that, it, that we're on the wrong path, it's like, exactly. no, it's just information and that there's something on the other side of it. Um, <laughs> well, I want to come back to this idea of the worthy struggle because – Many of us will find, as you said, if we don't find a worthy struggle to pursue, we're gonna, the struggle is going to find us anyway. So what do you mean by worthy struggle? I think it's when you, when you come across that thing you want to do, you know, that thing that, uh, that you realize is your path. So I have a friend who plays chess. That's her path. She wants to be the, a grandmaster in chess, you know, or starting a podcast. And it's not like I don't necessarily fully truly believe in this follow your passion. I think like Michael Phelps, for example, he said, you know, that he was he used to be terrified when he got into the water. But as, as he started swimming, his strength grew and then his passion for the sport developed as a result. So it's about figuring out and that could be you know sometimes it's handed to you like when let's say you have a you know you're michael phelps and your parents get you into swimming early or if you're tiger woods and your parents get you into golf you know that kind of thing but otherwise it takes a lot of ups and downs and my journey's been filled with them as, as you mm. can kind of tell but that's how i ultimately figured out this is what i want to do so it's really getting to the point where you say okay this is my path this is what i know that lights me up i know it's going to be tough but this is my struggle. This is my worthy path to be to who I, who I am and who I want to be for myself and for the world around me. I wonder, you know, Stephen Pressfield says that we can get into things called shadow callings or shadow careers instead of doing the real work that we're here to do. And as you talk about worthy struggle, I'm thinking of that. Like, I'm thinking like, oh, here's the thing that I do that fills up my time. People kiss my ass. I make good money at it, but it's not mm -hmm. the work that I'm here to do. It's not what I really believe that I'm doing. And if, if somebody were to really ask me, I'd have to admit that I'm waiting. I'm waiting to do the best work that I want to do. Is, is, is that fit in with what you're talking about here with Worthy Struggle? Yeah, I think, you know, I think that's part of the process of figuring it out, figuring that out. And there's no end to it. You know, I mean, some people might figure that out when they're 50, 60. You know, there's, it's not like the journey ever ends. So you're going to well, go I don't think you ever get done. Like, I think it's just a series of them. Not. There's a series of missions, you know, as you, yeah. as you take on missions. They may be a few years or they may be a few weeks but there's just a series of missions instead of this. I think a lot of us get stuck in this thing, like I have to find the thing, and then they sit around waiting for the thing instead of just engaging and finding it along the way and realizing there's going to be a multitude of them. Yeah, the greatest lessons are always in the doing. I mean, it doesn't matter how much you consume knowledge, the greatest lessons are in the doing, and that's where you're going to figure it out. I mean, when I joined the Marines, I wanted to go career you know, in the Marines, but ultimately I figured out that wasn't the right <laughs> path for me, and I have no regrets at all. I mean, it was an experience I absolutely treasure and couldn't be more proud of. But, you know, it was it was in through the doing that I figured that out. So I like the way you say that series of missions. <laughs> well, let's come back. To this. How, do, how does avoiding the worthy struggle relate to anxiety and depression? Because I know you have a lot of you've done a lot of study in here about the science of the brain. And so is there anything that can support like, hey, if I'm battling anxiety, if, I, if, if I'm in this chronic funk, what does that have to do with how I'm approaching fear or my worthy challenge? You know, sometimes life's going to punch you in the face whether you choose a struggle or not, right? And more often than not, it does. And that's the time also, like for example, when me coming back in the PTSD thing, you know, you're gonna go through these moments of anxiety, depression, uh, stress, but even those to me are not negative. Those to me are what you do with those emotions. I mean, I think depression, we all go through moments of sadness, it's human. 
But now when we assign that label to it, again, small example, a story to kind of enhance the learnings of Mm -hmm. this. I was working with this young teenager and she was really struggling and and the therapist then labeled her with depression, right? So now, and she's 13 years old. She shouldn't have been, you know, she she was going through stress and in school and sadness. But now when she was labeled as depression, every time she felt sad, she started making that as this part of her self-identity. So instead of saying something more accurate, like my brain goes through a state of sadness from time to time, but that's not me and that's not my, you know, my brain is not me. She started saying, I have depression and I am depressed. So when that's, when that attachment and self-identity comes, that's when it becomes, you know, who we are. Mm. And I think it's about, it's about separating yourself from your brain because we are, we don't control most of what shows up. I mean, you know, most of our lives are on autopilot on through the subconscious control controls it. And, uh, and we just have to then choose, you know, we have to harness that and through awareness, through practices of, I mean, meditation or simply labeling your emotion, just, you know, setting a timer on your watch every hour and saying, okay, what am I feeling now? And by doing that, you separate yourself from your emotion and then say, what can I do with this emotion? And that's why I don't think there's any bad or good emotion, whether it be anxiety, stress, or even guilt, as I was talking about, those can all be channeled into something meaningful. Okay. And that's, that, that's something meaningful is what ultimately your worthy struggle is. Right, right, right. All right, well, let's come back to this idea. Let's say that there's a guy right now, he's listening to this, he's stuck in traffic or he's on the treadmill and he's avoiding some big fear in his life. And he's thinking, well, once I don't feel the fear anymore, then I'll, then I'll go for it. Or once I have a certain path and I know everything's going to work out, then I'll go for it. How do, how do we employ some of the things that you're talking about in Fear Vonda to help him out? What's the first step? First step is, is, is as simple as reframing your fear, saying that this, this fear is okay. Like I call it like falling in love with fear and saying, okay, this fear can be a sign instead of a thing to avoid. And when you do that, you literally breathe in your fear and they've shown that the, by simply by choosing to embrace fear as opposed to running away from it, it actually changes your biology and increases some of those chemicals in the brain. So once you fall in love with the fear, the next step is, as some, is, is what I call isolating yourself from your fears. So you separate yourself from it. So you're not reacting from an emotional state, but you're understanding it. So you can, you know, do things like, okay, what am I afraid of? What's the worst case scenario? What's the best case scenario? And you're really looking at your fears and understanding everything that's, that's standing between where you are now and where you want to be. Once you isolate yourself from your fear, then it's very important to get clear on the reward. Most of us kind of, you know, we're like, okay, where we're, we get so consumed by our emotions, we're not, we're not present to what is the thing waiting for us beyond those emotions. Yeah. So you're choosing, you're saying your rewards, what are the summits? I like to say, you know, is, uh, is, is choosing those, those rewards on the other side of you. Another invaluable thing you can do is what I like to call finding your fear allies. So, you know, creating accountability buddies, mastermind groups, um, a vision board, even, you know, surrounding yourself with the things that you want to do. So for example, now that I know I want to run, I told you I was inspired by Pat Farmer and that wasn't like something that accidentally came into me, came to me. I was actually, I knew I was enjoying running. So I kept looking for these different things to inspire me. And I came across Pat Farmer's story. I just read about Killian Jornet who ran up Everest in 17 hours. So these kind of things put me in a state to say, Hey, you know, if the human beings are doing it, I can do it. And it, mm. it inspires me to engage my fears and, uh, and keep me focused on the struggle. And one of the most valuable things you can do is to actually visualize the struggle itself. So, you know, in, in the sort of personal development thing, we often talk about, um, visualizing the end result, but instead of doing that, they've shown studies have shown it's much more valuable to visualize yourself going through the obstacles. So for example, Michael Phelps, you know, when he used to always visualize himself swimming. So when his goggles got flooded in one of his race, it didn't slow him down for a second. He still won the gold and broke a world record. Even when I go running, I always visualize myself hitting a low point during that long run, which is mostly inevitable. And I actually picture myself fighting through that pain. And that's been far more effective than sort of visualizing the finish line. 
It's so better than some important. kind of vision board where everything's all laid out and everything's perfect. It's you you train your exactly. brain to say, "Hey, look, some shit's going to happen, so let's run through that. Let's see what you're going to do there." Absolutely. And then the, one of the most important things you can do is just as you're doing that visually is also practice that is developing a positive relationship to struggle to suffering. So, you know, you can, you can, and I, again, exercise is a great way to do that, but take small risks wherever you are, you know, in your own journey, there's no sort of right or wrong. It's just saying, where can I engage risk? You know, where can I engage a struggle to then grow? If I'm going through life and I'm, I'm doing whatever I can to avoid discomfort at every turn, which most of us are, most guys are like, oh, I want to have a purpose in life. And they don't realize that their purpose has been to avoid discomfort. <laughs> if if you look at their mm-hmm. life, like make sure I don't <laughs> talk to the, the, get into this situation, make sure I avoid this, make sure I avoid that. Yeah. That's their purpose. Avoid. And, uh, but what you're saying is where can I find little places to test myself? Because on every one of those places, I get to stretch a little bit. And more often than not, I'm going to get a return on that energy. I'm going to get a return mm-hmm. on that risk. And I'm going to be more uh, energized, more enlivened as a result. Uh, and the other yeah. thing I wanted to add was it was really powerful was when you, when you said lay out these fears, kind of do a, a, an audit of these fears. Every mm-hmm. time I've done that, I just, I just wrote something down for my coach that I'm sending to. And, and I was so embarrassed as I like typed this stuff. Out. I was like, this sounds so stupid. And, but that's the stuff that's holding me back. You know, yeah, it's like, it, yeah. it, and it's not until we put it out in front of us that we realize, wow, I'm letting this stupid thing get in the way of my peace of mind or the thing that I want to create. And so I, you know, find if you can, like, like you said, whether it's a coach or a mastermind group or whatever, but share this stuff because it may be embarrassing, but you'll start to see the, the small little thing that most of the time it's usually small or irrational or just completely batshit crazy that is holding <laughs> you back. Is that right? Absolutely. No, absolutely. And I love the way you said that because sometimes we, you know, we'll say that and we'll try not to do these things. But when you did it, like you said, you realize this is just so silly, you know, and, and when we do that, we, we sometimes judge it. We, we, we figure out these kind of things are silly. We, and we judge our fears, we judge it. And I think that putting it out allows us to step out and say, whatever we're feeling is normal. I mean, for example, I still feel like I, I'm going back to the United States tomorrow, right? And I know I'm going to be alone. My wife's not with me. And I know that when I'm alone, the desire to drink often shows up. And I used to beat myself up for that. Like, what's wrong with me? You know, Just why for having the desire, you would beat yourself up? Is that what you're exactly. saying? Exactly. Just mm-hmm. for having the desire. The fact that it would show up. Like, I'm an, you know, I should be a peak performer. What's wrong with me? That kind of thing, right? And now I'm saying, it's oh, like I wouldn't be able to have this conversation with you not too long ago. The fact that even it showed up, I'd be kind of embarrassed to myself. But now I can say that, okay, it shows up. So what? It's not about whether it shows up. It's about what I do with it. Right. You know? And so stop judging those fears, those, those addictions, whatever they may be. It's what you ultimately do with it. And by not judging it, then you can channel it into something meaningful and you can accept it and then leverage it. <laughs> One of my favorite quotes that you, that you laid out was, uh, fear doesn't stop us. It's how we respond to that fear. And so that's, that's my big takeaway from this. Uh, Akshay Nanavati uh, Fearvana, go check it out. The revolutionary science of how to turn fear into health, wealth, and happiness. You can learn more about it at fearvana.com. Thanks so much for talking today, man. Thank you for having me. It was a real pleasure, Trip. If these interviews are helping you, then please visit the new man on iTunes and leave us a positive review so others can discover the show more easily. Thanks for listening.